Good morning. Welcome. Welcome to Garden City Church. I'm Julia Allen, and I am very thankful that we all get to be here together on this second Sunday of Advent. I think it's probably worth just um, refreshing a little so we're all on the same page, that the word Advent, it actually means coming or arrival. In, in many traditions of the Christian church, the Advent season is considered a time of reflection on and preparation for celebrating the coming of Christ. It's a time where we celebrate the first coming of Christ as a baby um, on the day that we celebrate Christmas. It's a time meant to create space for expectation and waiting, for acknowledging our need for a Savior and our desire for God to speak to us and come close to us. It's also this season where we practice waiting with hope for the second coming of Christ, when we believe Jesus will one day return to bring the fullness of his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven, when he will make wrong things right, bring the ultimate realization of justice and freedom, and when God will wipe every tear from our eyes and make all things new. Advent is also a season where we acknowledge the in-between, when we can be reminded of the ongoing and continual coming of Jesus into all of the big and small moments of our everyday lives, that God is present and at work in ways we can see and in ways that we can't. And I believe it's a good and worthy spiritual discipline in this season of so much holiday busyness and excitement, so much to do, for us to learn to slow ourselves down a bit and really reflect on all that this season of preparation holds for us. Now, you might remember traditionally there are four themes of Advent, and each of the four weeks leading up to Christmas present this opportunity to focus our, ref our reflection and prayer on one of these four themes, hope, peace, joy, and love. Now, here at Garden City, in these weeks leading up to Christmas, we've decided to work our way through four different passages in the Gospels that involve the visitation of angels, these divine messengers that were sent by God to break a 400-year season of silence, to announce the arrival of our Savior and extend an invitation to a few unexpected, unexpecting people to step into the roles that they would play in God's incredible plan of rescue and redemption. If you were here with us last week, you heard a really beautiful message from Carrie Buckner about Zechariah's visit from the angel Gabriel, where she used that story to invite us into considering the Advent theme of hope. Carrie helped us understand how that story teaches us that we are loved by a promise-keeping God who hears our prayers and who has a plan to redeem the world we live in. And she wisely reminded us that while we all need that message of hope, it's important that we don't ignore the often long seasons of waiting that precede our hope. Now today... We get to read together through the story of Mary, a very unknown girl from a very unknown place, 
who also received a visit from that same angel, Gabriel, and how her response to his invitation changed not only the trajectory of her life, but the trajectory of the entire human race and all of creation. We're going to talk about how, through this encounter, Mary comes to experience the peace of God by trusting in God's goodness, welcoming God's presence, and surrendering to God's purpose. And my hope for us today is that we'll learn a little something about how the peace of God is available to us as well. So, Let's um, start by reading our passage today from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 1, verses 26 through 38. Please feel free to follow along in your Bibles or read on the side screens here. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High God. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin? The angel answered, The Holy Spirit will come on you, and this power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age, and she who is said to be unable to conceive is in her sixth month, for no word from God will ever fail. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May your word to me be fulfilled. Then the angel left her. Now, I don't know about you, but this story of Mary, it always hits me deeply, It stops me in my tracks every time I read it. Maybe it's because it just seems so surreal and shocking, so nonsensical in the way that my mind understands the world and how it works. A virgin birth? A human woman carrying inside her body the actual Son of God, the Savior who will rescue the world and the Savior who will save her. Maybe it's because part of me, there is a part of me that can identify with feeling somewhat unimportant and unseen, but holding this quiet longing for significance. And and maybe it's because as a mother myself who has carried my own children inside me and delivered them into the world, I'm familiar with the complexity of emotions that come with being a home for another life the questions and the doubts, the anxiety and fear, the hope and the wonder, the dreams and the joy, and also the really very real physical realities, the 
limitations and sickness and exhaustion and pain and self-sacrifice that come along with it. And if I'm honest, even that is a pretty reductive way to consider this story of Mary. She lived in this time and place where the realities of her own life likely added an even heavier weight to the words of this angel who appeared to her entirely unexpected, completely upending her life as she knew it. Let's consider for a moment the setting here. Mary is this young Jewish girl from the town of Nazareth. And Nazareth is not a place anybody wants to be from. It was this tiny little village in a pretty remote region of Judea, a place that nobody important ever wanted to go. It was so unimportant that it usually wasn't even shown on a map. And as a young woman growing up in Nazareth, Mary's imagination of what her life might be was probably very limited. There's a pastor and author, Kent Hughes, who describes the likely trajectory of Mary's life this way. He says, from all indicators, her life would not be extraordinary. She would marry humbly, give birth to numerous poor children, never travel farther than a few miles from home, and one day die like thousands of others before her, a nobody in a nothing town in the middle of nowhere. Now, Mary was betrothed to be married to a man named Joseph. But being betrothed in that uh, ancient Near Eastern culture is not the same as being engaged in the Western culture that we know today. Mary had likely exercised very little agency in the whole process. People became betrothed to be married through a decision made by their families. And it was this very elaborate binding agreement that even involved a dowry, a payment that was made by the future groom or the groom's family to the bride's father. And Mary being pregnant before she was married would have been absolutely scandalous. She would have been judged harshly, condemned. She would have brought shame on her family. And according to Jewish law, she would even have been at risk for being put to death. And at minimum, the discovery of a pregnancy in this time between a betrothal and an actual wedding would have been more than enough to totally disrupt the very predictable, typical, expected, safe course of Mary's life. Enough to place her entire future in question. So when Mary is going through the mundane motions of her just simple, predictable life, and an angel just suddenly appears before her, we can only imagine the shock, the confusion and questions that flashed through her mind. Greetings, you who are highly favored, Gabriel says. The Lord is with you. What? It's, it's no surprise that Mary's initial response was to feel troubled and to wonder about this greeting, to wonder what on earth was going on. And then Gabriel goes on to tell her, do not be afraid. He reiterates that Mary has found favor with God. And then the angel gives her news more shocking even than his appearance itself. 
she will become pregnant and give birth to a baby, a son. His name will be Jesus. He will be a king, the son of the Most High, taking on the royal position of the descendants of King David and rule a kingdom that lasts forever. And this is going to happen not through typical expected human means, but through the work of the Holy Spirit. And oh, by the way, your cousin Elizabeth, who is way too old to become a mother, is a few short months away from giving birth to a child of her own. Can you imagine the drastic and sudden shift in perspective from what she thought her life would be to the future that is now being set before her? I'd like to invite us for a moment to really consider this on a deeper level. I'm going to have them show two images on the side screens here. You guys should be able to see them now. These are two pieces of art by the artist Kelly Lattimore. One is called Our Lady Mother of the Streets, and one is called Mama. Now, these are two works of art that reflect two different moments in the life that Mary could never have begun to imagine before this encounter. One of Mary holding the Christ child as an infant, and one of Mary holding the body of Jesus, presumably after his death. I'd love for you to just take a moment and take these images in Look at them and feel whatever surfaces. From expecting to live a quiet, simple life in a place where everyone probably knows your name but few people actually see you, to the scandal of an unwed pregnancy, the possibility of a broken betrothal, the threat to your social and physical safety, the weight of knowing an infinite and all-powerful being resides within your very normal human body. And then the consideration of all that would come after the birth of this child. It's interesting, the text right here in the first chapter of Luke doesn't give us much insight into the internal workings of Mary's mind. It doesn't tell us what she might have understood about all the ancient prophecy reflected in the angel's words, or all that being a mother to the promised Savior would eventually mean. But a baby doesn't stay a baby, right? A baby grows into a child, and then into a man. And this man, this servant Savior King, was prophesied to one day suffer and die. I think it's a bit of the wonderful mystery of this story to consider how much of all that Mary may have understood in that moment. But I think we could all probably understand how the angel's encouragement, do not be afraid, might have just seemed utterly ridiculous. Now, remember how I told you that today we were going to talk about peace? What could a moment like this, this revolutionary moment 
in Mary's life teach us about peace? I think it does come back to that phrase, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid is not a command not to feel when we face trials or suffering. It's not a condemnation if we experience questions or doubts or we feel unsteady in the face of things that threaten our lives or livelihood, our safety or security. Do not be afraid is an invitation to peace no matter what may come. And peace can mean a lot of things, right? I think we often talk about peace in reference to these external realities, the things we can see in the world around us. We talk about peace as the absence of war or conflict, or as this sort of state where we experience contentment, or a reality where people are comfortable and they live together in harmony. And these are valid ways to describe what peace can look like practically in the world we live in. But what if we allowed the prophets who foretold Jesus' coming to more fully shape our understanding of peace? Because one of them, Isaiah, referred to Jesus as Prince of Peace. And the word Isaiah uses there is shalom. Jesus comes to be the Prince of Shalom. And shalom means so much more than our understanding of peace. Shalom is is a Hebrew word for peace. And it's one of those words where we just really don't have an adequate counterpart in our English language. One of those words where we lose some of the weight of the meaning in translation. Shalom means not merely an absence of conflict or a sense of harmony, but to be complete, to be sound or whole in all aspects of life. Shalom, this fuller and deeper sense of peace, means experiencing wholeness in our relationships with God, with one another, and with all of creation. And it describes this reality where we experience true sufficiency, justice, equity, freedom, and thriving. In this moment where so much of Mary's life and understanding probably just felt disjointed, just separated and scattered and then kind of smashed back together again in this unrecognizable form, how could she have experienced peace? And to bring it all to here, to us today, how can we experience peace? Where does it come from and how are we to find it? I believe that Mary comes to experience the peace of God by trusting in God's goodness, welcoming God's presence, and surrendering to God's purpose. So to try to unpack that, where do we see her finding peace in God's goodness? It's in the proclamation of favor. In Gabriel's greeting to Mary, he addresses her, you who are highly favored, as though it's some sort of title. He's telling her who she is. And he says it again. This time is a sort of thing to gain or possess. You have found favor with God. That Hebrew word we translate as favor means unmerited kindness, 
a gracious gift freely given. Favor is not something Mary earned, nor could she have earned it. She actually says that in Luke 2, in, the, in this beautiful collection of verses known as the, Magnific- the Magnificat, or Mary's song. She says, My soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed, for the Mighty One has done great things for me. The favor that Mary received was based not on her goodness, but on the goodness of God. And the same is true of us. We can never be good enough to earn God's favor. But here's the invitation to peace. We don't have to. Doesn't that bring a sense of relief? God looks on each one of us in his love and mercy derived from his own goodness, and he gives us the gift of his kindness and unmerited favor, inviting us to be co-laborers with him in transforming the world to become more and more like his kingdom. And there is peace in trusting that that goodness that is freely given is not dependent on us. Church, how can we find peace in God's unmerited kindness? I think Mary's response shows us how. She responds in worship. The Magnificat, Mary's song, is a hymn of worship. Author Richard Foster, he wrote a kind of classic book called The Celebration of Discipline, and it's all about multiple different spiritual disciplines that we can engage as followers of Jesus to to come closer to the heart of the Father. And he says this about the discipline of worship. He says, worship is our response to the overtures of love from the heart of the Father. Worship is both a response to God's goodness and a means by which we more fully understand and experience it. So if we want to learn a deeper trust in the goodness of God, making a priority of entering into worship is a good place to start. Second, Mary experiences peace by welcoming God's presence. When Gabriel declares, the Lord is with you, it carries a sense of both a present reality and an ongoing promise. And even as the angel's words about what is coming signal this upheaval and disruption and rejection and sacrifice and risk, he leads with the assurance that God will remain present to Mary, that she will not experience one moment of that journey alone, for the Holy Spirit will overshadow her and the Son of God will dwell within her. In church, it feels important to mention this. Mary was more than her womb. Yes, she did become the person whose body nurtured the physical embodiment of our Savior. And her role in God's grand redemption plan is unique and beautiful and necessary. 
But it is not only because she birthed Jesus into the world that she experienced God's presence. We are also invited to welcome the Prince of Peace to dwell with Emmanuel, God with us. We are also created in the image of God with the potential for good works that birth new life and redemption into this world. How can we, too, accept the peace that our Father offers and welcome his holy presence into our lives? I believe that we can approach that through the spiritual discipline of prayer. Again, Richard Foster, I think, helps put words to this. Continuous conversation with God produces many benefits. Among the greatest of these is the specific joy of learning to abide in Jesus' presence. If we desire to experience greater peace, I think we have to set ourselves about a regular practice of entering into God's presence through prayer. And then finally, Mary finds peace in surrendering to God's purpose. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May your word to me be fulfilled. Now, I want to be sensitive here because I know this one might be tricky for some of us. Surrender is a place of vulnerability. It's a relinquishing of control. Surrender is releasing to this current of a force outside of us. And in this broken world that we live in, surrender can be distorted in ways that are dehumanizing and destructive. Surrender is a thing that's often exploited by unjust and unholy powers wielded for the purposes of manipulation and abuse. And some of us may bear the scars of our experiences with surrender to those who have not loved us as God does. But here, we're reminded that peace can be found in surrender to the will and the ways of the one who formed us in love with great intentionality and purpose. But how do we do that? How can we experience peace in surrender? I believe we're offered that opportunity through the spiritual practice of submission. And Jesus himself models this for us. In the Gospel of Mark, Jesus instructs his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. Church, that is submission. Denying ourselves. Denying our own preferences, wants, and even perceived needs. Denying our comfort and control. Denying our sense that we know better. And doing that to take on sacrifice just as Jesus did. I hope you're not getting too tired of Richard Foster's perspective on these things because I think he has something really valuable to say here, too. He did, after all, write a whole book about the spiritual discipline. So this is what he says about submission. 
Every discipline has its own corresponding freedom. What freedom corresponds to submission? It's the ability to lay down the terrible burden of always needing to get our own way. The obsession to demand that things go the way we want them to go is one of the greatest bondages in human society. <laughs> I think we could all probably feel the truth of that, right? We can find peace in releasing our grip on control to surrender to the purpose and work of the Spirit of God. We can find freedom in not needing to get our own way, in releasing control on our gifts, our abilities, our resource and possessions, yes, even our money that we think we've earned ourselves and we deserve. We can find peace in recognizing it wasn't ever really ours to control. And we can trust the one who asks us to follow in his footsteps of sacrifice and submission. So church, here's the question I want to leave us with today. Are we experiencing peace? Are you experiencing peace? Do you need to remember and trust in God's goodness, demonstrated in his unmerited favor, mercy, and kindness? I'd encourage you in the coming days and weeks to renew a commitment to the practice of prayer. I'm sorry, to the practice of worship. Worship in your home while you're cooking dinner or in the car driving to or from work. In church, show up here to engage corporate worship with this community that God has provided. I know it's easy to find a million reasons not to get out of bed and get here on Sunday. I get it. And there are a million other things competing for our time and attention, and it's, it's so easy to justify all of those things. But there is a power when we approach the throne of grace together in worship to be transformed together as we remember the goodness of the God we serve. Do you need to enter into this Advent season more tangibly aware of God's presence that sustains us in this middle space where the imperfection still remains, where we still suffer and feel pain, where we still experience confusion and doubt and darkness? then I would encourage you to lean into the practice of prayer. It doesn't have to be complicated. Just make a simple commitment to set aside 15 minutes, three times this week, for some quiet, focused, uninterrupted prayer. And prayer can just be a continual conversation with God throughout your day and all of your moments. You don't have to have fancy words. You can just sit in God's presence. Jesus really is enough. And do you feel convicted to surrender to God's purpose? Then maybe, like Mary, it's time to engage the practice of submission. I'd really encourage all of us to examine the areas of our lives where we feel like we need to get our own way where we feel like we need to maintain control or the bottom falls out and everything falls apart. 
Maybe your home is your sanctuary and you feel like you need to keep it in the way that helps you feel comfortable and safe. And sometimes that means keeping other people out. Invite a neighbor over for coffee or for dinner. Maybe you feel like the money and resource you have is yours to manage as you want. That's what everything in the world tells us, right? You've worked for it. You've earned it. It's rightly yours, and you can use it or save it or give it as you see worthy. But maybe that's not the way Jesus sees your money. Maybe it's time to consider giving more generously than you have, even in ways that cost you comfort and security. Maybe even giving to meet the needs of someone you don't think deserves it. Church, Mary's story reminds us that the invitation, do not be afraid, is an invitation to peace, and that peace finds its foundation in the goodness, presence, and purpose of God. May we receive and enter into that peace. Let's pray. Emmanuel, thank you for being the God who is with us, who enters into the middle of our mess, who is present to us in our places of grief and regret, disappointment and anger, who's present to us in our joy and our celebration and our delight and gratitude and wonder. Thank you that you are present to us in all of those really uncomfortable internal places where we know things aren't quite right and you still have work to do and we don't want to release and let you do it. Thank you for your love, for your undeserved kindness and goodness that we can rest in. Jesus, help us in this coming week, in this season, and moving forward to know more deeply your goodness, to welcome your presence, and to learn the freedom of surrendering to your purpose that we might know your peace, your shalom. We love you, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. <laughs>